Kings chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning, continuing our Prophets and Kings series, looking at the ministry of Elisha, and we're going to be looking at one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament this morning. I am excited to be able to, uh, to jump into this. Uh, be, being a pastor is an odd, an odd time, or an odd thing at, at times, that uh, it has an impact that you don't really anticipate until you are in the uh, kind of the standard flow of things, an impact on life kind of outside of standard uh, work hours. And one of the things is that everything, and I mean everything, has the potential to end up in a sermon. Books, movies, podcasts, uh, all of it is fodder for a sermon illustration. I'll use anything that I can in order to uh, help me communicate the truth of the gospel to you guys, uh, to illustrate that truth so that you see it more clearly, and that will keep you awake. Honestly, I will find anything that I can to be able to do those two things, uh, and, I, and I will do it. Everything is on the table. My family is well aware that they could end up in a sermon at any point, and they could be their own little sermon illustration. I try to use discretion with that. I try not to do that uh, and, and not tell their story when it isn't mine to tell. But that's kind of part of being the pastor's family. Uh, anything you say can and will be used against you on a Sunday morning. It's just how it, how it works. Unfortunately for me this week, I personally get the treatment as God has seen fit to make me an object lesson for this morning's uh, lesson. You see, this week was uh, on Monday and Tuesday, we were with uh, Isaiah uh, playing in a middle school golf tournament, and one of the things that happens in a middle school golf tournament is that you have to look for a lot of golf balls that are not in the fairway, but instead in the woods. Uh, and so we had to spend some time uh, looking, it just kind of comes with the, the, the territory, and on more than one occasion, I found myself in the woods looking for golf balls, not really even shots from Isaiah, but just one of the other kids in the group. And I usually manage to find the, find the ball, but I also manage to find some poison ivy somewhere along the way. Uh, and so what, what has happened to me is I've got it on my face, I've got it like in my beard, I've got it on my arm, I've got it behind my ears. Uh, it's kind of been, it's been pretty terrible, honestly, the last few days dealing with this. Uh, it's not the worst case I've ever had, uh, but it's no fun. Turns out it may have given me a little a little peek into the world of today's text. Uh, our story today, unless you have the Jesus Storybook Bible or uh, have grown up in church, you probably don't know this story. It's not one of the more well-known stories, but it's a story that teaches us so much about how God works, how life works, and what God asks out of us, what he asks from us. It's a story about a very important man with a very big problem. The guy's name is Naaman, and he's the commander of the Syrian armies, and he's developed leprosy, and he's desperate to do something about it. Somewhere about Thursday, I was like, okay, I'm right there with you, Naaman. Whatever you got, give it to me, because I would like to get rid of this poison ivy. Um, but this is who we're talking about, is Naaman. And we're going to start in the beginning of chapter 5, and we're going to work our way through about half of the chapter. And I'll be honest with you, I... I seriously thought about taking this one chapter, this one story of this man, Naaman, and making it about three or four sermons, its own little mini-series within the series, but uh, for the sake of time and kind of pushing through the, the book, decided we'll, we'll do it all in one, one big uh, chunk this morning, 
but there's a lot that's going to be left in here that we're not going to talk about that I would encourage you guys to talk about in your discipleship groups this week. So uh, we'll start here, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of, the army of, and, and commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now there's a lot to unpack in one verse right there. There's a lot that was going on. Namely, we meet our character Naaman. This is the guy that's going to go all throughout the story, almost the only character that's even named in this story. And what you need to understand is that he is the commander of the Syrian army. But if you don't know the history and the context, that doesn't quite tell the, the whole story. You see, the Syrian army wasn't just some random army. This was the army that was threatening the northern kingdom of Israel, where Elijah and Elisha and Ahab, the, all the stories we've been looking at over the last couple of months, all this is happening. So it's not some random army. This is the one that a few years from now, just a, a few years down the road, will eventually demolish the northern kingdom of Israel and send all of their people into exile. This was Israel's sworn enemy. And Naaman was a leader, if not the leader, of this army. He was the man. You, could, you, you don't get much more important than who he was, a man of great importance and notoriety. And at this time, the great army commanders would rival the kings in their notoriety and their popularity. A mighty man of valor, it says here. He was the man. And I, I just wonder if you even notice the little phrase that it says in there, Naaman was in high favor because the Lord had given him victory. Now, that's specifically there, that word, the Lord, that is Yahweh, because Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given him victory over Israel. Now, that's not because Naaman is a godly man. He was about as far from it as you can be. He was the enemy, the leader of, uh, of the, the, the army that was attacking God's people. He was an enemy to God's people, yet God had given him victory. Kind of makes you scratch your head just a little bit there when you read that, doesn't it? There's so much that we could get into with this, and honestly, I'm not even going to, to comment other than to say God is sover, sovereign over, over all, and he does as he pleases. That's all I'm going to give to that, but there's a lot you could dive into that and could really uh, challenge a lot of your assumptions about the way God works. And so if that first verse doesn't tip you off, the rest of the story is going to make it clear this is how God works. He is sovereign over all, and he does as he pleases. But for now, Naaman has a problem. He has leprosy. It doesn't say how advanced or how bad it is, but if you had leprosy at this time, then it was basically just a matter of time before it spread, and it would begin to destroy your flesh, turn you into a zombie lookalike, and then eventually kill you. This great man with all his achievements, all his power, all his military might, this great man could not outrun this terrible disease. And I'll give you another tip for the rest of our story. If God can give him victory, then we'd be foolish to think that God isn't in Naaman's problems too. Fortunately for Naaman, he has a hope for this disease that was for all intents and purposes during that time hopeless. So let's read in verse 2. 
Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. So what happens if someone speaks up? And it just so happens that this someone is a young female slave from Israel. While Assyrians would, would, would eventually wipe out all of Israel into exile and take all of them captive, at this time they, they were just kind of, kind of doing like border skirmishes. And they would go into towns along the border and in places that were less fortified. And they would go into these villages. And what would happen is they would go into these villages and they would kill almost everyone in these villages. They would destroy these small towns and then those that they didn't kill they would enslave. This girl came from one of those raids. This is an exceptionally awkward position for Naaman. Now, the text doesn't quite capture this, but you can imagine how this would be. You, you, you cannot get a more dramatic, uh, a, a more dramatic uh, power dynamic at play here. The commander of, of the armies of Assyria and a captured Hebrew slave girl. That she would even speak up is amazing. That he would listen, that tells you how desperate he is. That he would listen to her of all people. There is probably no one else on the planet that, that would be less likely to gain a hearing from Naaman. But he listened to what she had to say because he was that desperate to find help. He knew if things didn't change, it was all gone. His career, his name, his fame, his wealth, his status, all gone. And he would be cast out like all the other lepers. Alone. Dying all by himself. Because no one could be around him. So he takes her advice. He goes to the king and he says, king, help me out. I've got to go. I know it sounds crazy, but this is what this girl says. We've captured uh, the, 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 this town, and so we need to go back to Israel because that's where her God works. He works in that area, in that place. We need to go back. So he takes her advice, and he prepares to head back to Israel. But he knows he can't go back empty-handed. And he knows he can't just cross back over the border. Because after all, the last time that he was seen across the border, it's when he was carting slaves back over to Syria. Maybe even this very girl. He had killed their families. He had destroyed their towns. He needed some political cover. And so he goes to the king and he asks the king to provide the political cover for him to go back into Israel. The king enjoying his commander's success. There's nothing more than a king wants than a commander that will go out and fight his battles and win them for him. So the king, enjoying Naaman's success, quickly agrees and writes the letter. So Naaman prepares for the trip. He packs money, he packs clothes, and whatever else he thinks he, that might be needed to offer up to this Yahweh, this God of Israel. And he needs to make sure that he doesn't show up empty-handed. So this is where we pick up in verse 5. 
And so he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought, the letter of the king, or he brought the letter of the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is making a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel receives this letter, and instead of receiving it for what it is, a desperate plea for help on behalf of Naaman, he takes it as a veiled threat of war. He takes it as a veiled threat of war, because this is basically how he sees this. The king of Israel at the time had long abandoned the worship of Israel. Remember, this is, this is following right in line with Ahab. He had long abandoned the worship of Yahweh and the belief that, that, that God could do anything. And so when he receives this letter, he is distraught because he knows he cannot heal Naaman. Leprosy is an incurable disease. And so he knows that that is a problem for him. And his fear is that the, the king of Syria will use this as a pretext for war. Oh, you won't heal my captain? Well, this little girl says you can. So if you're not going to heal my captain, then feel my wrath. That's basically the fear that the king of Israel has. He sees this because he's living in fear that this day will come. He sees this as a big problem. So the king of Israel tears his clothes in despair for what he feels like is about to happen. For him, this is the beginning of of the end. And it's all over this letter and this pretext of, of a slave girl talking about healing the commander of the armies. And I want you to see what the king of Israel is doing here because it's exactly what, what huge chunks of American Christianity is doing right now. Naaman came to the king with a massive problem, a problem that seems to be physical. But as we'll see as we go throughout this story, at its core is spiritual. The king, blind to the true nature of the problem, blind even to the spiritual realities of what is in front of him, thinks that the problem is not spiritual, but is political. The king thinks he has a political problem with the king of Syria. He is distraught because he cannot find a political solution to a spiritual problem. Friends, this is the state of Christianity in America in many of our churches and in many hearts. We rend our garments, we tear our clothes in search of a political solution. But the problems of this country will never be solved through a politician or through some government policy. They are spiritual problems that require spiritual healing. But we are looking in the halls of politics to answer these problems. The king of Israel is distraught because he has no political solution for this. You say, but pastor, tomorrow, this week, they're expected to overturn Roe v. Wade. Isn't that evidence that a political solution can help fix a spiritual problem? Shouldn't we rend our garments whenever our politician loses? Because after all, look at what's at stake. Listen, I want to be clear. While the overturning of Roe looks like a win for the pro-life cause, it looks like something that, that pro-life advocates have been uh, working for, that we've been working for, for for decades to get to this place. It looks like a win. We need to remember, first of all, that, that, that really what is happening is they're simply handing the decision over back to the states 
to, to, to make the decision, right? This is not, this is not the, the end-all, be-all that, that we would like. They're simply handing the decision back over to the states. And in some states, abortion will actually become more accessible, not less, as a result of what it seems like the Supreme Court is about to do. But even if that were not true, the goal of the pro-life position is not that abortion would be illegal. It's that it would be unthinkable. Those are not the same thing. Legal positions are important and vital, but legal solutions won't fix spiritual problems. Laws, candidates, political parties, we are no better than the apostate king of Israel, distraught because we cannot find our way back to God when our political political cover is gone. And the American church will end up just like the northern kingdom of Israel in the not-so-distant future, virtually non-existent. And what's left will be in exile if we continue to seek the answers to our problems in the halls of politics. Church, we have to see the problem. We need spiritual solutions for spiritual problems. That's what Naaman is about to get here. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, and he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him, now come, let him come now to me, that, we, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. So Elisha, in effect, says, What are you freaking out about? Don't worry about it. Just sit in my house and I will take care of him. Don't worry about him. All you needed to do was call. Just call. If you had just called, then I would have taken care of him. Send him my way. So Naaman heads over to Elisha's house. He goes over. He knocks on Elisha's door. And I want to make sure that you have the the proper picture for, for, for what you see in your head is happening here. Naaman shows up. Full presidential motorcade, right? He's got all his camels with him. He's got all his chariots with him. He's got all of his stuff. He shows up with all of his servants, all these people. He's probably in full military regalia because he's not going to show up at a, at a, in, a, in a foreign place kind of incognito. He wants them to know how important he is. So he's probably fully dressed in his, uh, in his medals and everything that, that comes with the position that he had in a, uh, the full motorcade there, gold, silver, clothing in toe, and he pulls up to this prophet's house. Now, we don't know exactly what Elisha's house looks like, but I'm going to guess he's not in the like tele-evangelist celebrity preacher tax bracket. I don't think that that's where he's at, right? He's probably in a one to two room uh, house uh, when, when Naaman pulls up. And so what does Naaman do? Does he run out to greet him? Like, oh my goodness, look who is here. Let me help you. Does he bow and salute? Does he prepare a meal and invite him in? No, Elisha doesn't do any of those things. Verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. He sends a messenger to the door. He doesn't even bother to go to the door himself. The house is probably small enough that whenever the messenger opens the door to deliver the message to Naaman, Naaman can probably see Elisha sitting right there. And Elisha's like, tell him this message. 
He won't even talk to him directly. It could not be more rude and offensive. He says, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be good to go. Now the Jordan, whenever you hear that, is not what you think it is. I'm, I'm going to bet that you, you probably have a picture in your mind like going down to the banks of the Tennessee River or the banks of the Ohio or the Mississippi and this big, powerful, powerful river that if you step in it, you will be cleaned and it will take these things away. I want you to think more like Mossy Creek, okay? The, 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 the Jordan River is a little bit more, and Mossy Creek might even be generous, right? Depending on where he's at and exactly what the time of the season is, this probably looks like a dirty creek. It's probably about all that it is. Not much more than that. So Naaman is beside himself. The level of offense that he has received in this moment from Elisha is astronomical. Something he has probably never experienced in his lifetime. He's snubbed. He's not greeted He's told then to go rinse in this nasty creek out back. He's not having any of it. He is ticked off at what has just happened. Look in verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would, come, he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and far? Far par, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. So he's like, I came from this place with these great and mighty rivers. And you want me to go wash in that thing? That thing is nasty and tiny. There's nothing special about that. There's nothing special about what, what Elisha is asking me to do. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he's mad at the offense that he's received. He is angry as can be, and he cannot get past that to actually think straight. So a servant comes and says, hang on, man. We've come a long way. This has been a long journey. If he had told you to do something else, you would have gone and, and done it, right? If, if, if Elisha had come to you, Naaman, and said, get me the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West, You'd be like, we got some creepy monkeys to kill. Let's go. I'm ready to fight. This is what we're going to do. But instead, all he said was, go out back and take a bath seven different times. You see, Naaman's anger isn't because it's too hard to be clean. It's because it's too easy. Anyone can wash in the river seven times. Anyone. And Naaman is a lot of things, but he's not just anyone. He's someone. He's special. He has money. He has clothing. He has power. He has influence. He has might. He doesn't want something anyone can have. He wants something that, that matches who he is. And he doesn't want it for free. He wants it to be equal to what he's worth. And here's where we start to get a little bit closer to Naaman's real problem. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Desperate times make for desperate men. And Naaman was desperate. He needed to be healed. He couldn't walk away without trying. 
he at least had to try what it is that Elisha had suggested. So he did. And God chose to heal this enemy to God's people. Naaman realizes what has happened, and immediately he sets out to offer tribute to the God of Israel. He has to repay Yahweh for what he's done. He has to be able to give back for what he's done and to say, take this, you, 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 you need this, this is what God has done, he deserves this. And so he seeks to repay Yahweh for what he's done. And he says, here, take all of these things. Eat, eat. You see, the way that it works is each people had, uh, had a God. And, and each people, uh, the, the way that it worked, each people had a God, and God was tied to the people and to the land, right? So he's not the God of the Israel people. He's the God of Israel, the, the place, and the people, all right there together. And so what, uh, what uh, Naaman is trying to do is he's trying to say, look, I want to honor this God. And what would be totally normal for them is that instead of saying, well, I need to switch teams now because of what Yahweh has done, is that they would just add a God to their kind of pantheon of gods. As they conquer uh, a people, they would add one. And the, the general idea was basically the more the merrier. The more gods we can add to our pantheon, the more favor we got going for us. So we want to have all the gods we can because that means we got more going on. So for, for, for Israel's God to heal Naaman is really not that big a deal to, to the Syrian people. That would be normal. They'll take all they can get. There's no need to limit your options. Naaman needs to make sure that this God, though, is repaid. That he pays off the debt now for what is done. Verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. So he goes back to Elisha's house, and he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. That is a big statement. That is a very big statement. Not one that anyone has told Naaman to make, one that he has discerned for himself. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said... Elisha said, as the Lord lives before, before whom I stand, I will receive none. Keep your gold, keep your silver, keep your clothes. I don't want any of it. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So he says, all right, fine. If you're not going to take the money, give me the dirt, which seems like an odd request for us. But remember, if the God is tied to the land, then what Naaman needs is he needs to take the land with him so that he can kind of set up his own altar in his backyard and make sure that he is worshiping that God and that God alone. So Naaman makes a massive statement. He doesn't just offer to repay Yahweh or to honor Yahweh. He says, there is no God in all the earth but Yahweh. It's, it's massive in its implications. He doesn't just honor Israel's God, but he renounces all others. It is a beautiful picture of salvation. But he still wants to repay Yahweh for what he's done. And Elisha will have none of it. This is not a gift to be purchased beforehand, nor is it one to be, to be repaid after the fact. The gospel, the good news, is that there is no way for us to earn this salvation, nor is there a way for us to pay off this debt. It is God's to reconcile, 
and his alone. And the message of Naaman is the message of Elisha, that God saves. And he does it for whom he chooses, when he chooses, and how he chooses. We just sit back and marvel at his grace. I'm going to say that again. He does it for whom he chooses, when he chooses, and how he chooses. This was a guy that was a sworn enemy of God's people. He was an enemy of God. When Naaman came to Elisha, Naaman needed to be healed. And he had to be the one thing that he, he, he had to do the one thing that he, he had no idea how to do. He had to stop trying to promote himself, try to stop trying to earn his position, to buy his influence. His power and his money contribute nothing to his healing. The only thing he had to offer was his obedience in receiving what was offered. That's it. Not obedience in obtaining something by completing a, ta- a task. Not go and do something and then God will reward you. No, 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 no. This is simply a matter of receiving what is offered. I like how the Jesus Storybook Bible says this about Naaman. All ne- Naaman needed was nothing. And it was the only thing that Naaman didn't have. Naaman had spent his life becoming someone. But when he came before Elisha and before God, that stuff got him nowhere at all. It didn't even get him past the front door of Elisha's house. So it is with us. We spend our lives in pursuit of things that really mean nothing. When Naaman was diagnosed with leprosy, his status, his victories, his power, his influence, his wealth meant nothing. The leprosy revealed his true poverty. So it is with our sin. Our sin reveals just how empty our lives are as we spend our lives chasing after the things we've convinced will, we're convinced will bring us healing. But in the end, all they can do is expose how desperately we need to be healed. All they can do is serve like Naaman's military awards and his armor. Underneath the accolades, underneath the armor is a man whose skin is rotting away. Underneath it all for us, apart from the healing power of God, is a heart that is rotting away. God used Naaman's pain to bring him to his healing. His greatest fault became his greatest opportunity to meet and to know God. His greatest weakness became the place where, the only place where God could find him and meet him. Sometimes it takes our most desperate moments our most painful experiences, and our deepest sufferings to be open to truly knowing and giving ourselves over to God. I've got two more things for us to see this morning. Two things that I, 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 we, I don't think we can just kind of let go, but two things that, that I want you to see before we wrap up. Just read a couple more verses here. Verse 17. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule, two mule loads of earth, For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So he's saying, there's no other gods, it's God alone. But then he's got a request. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, or, yeah, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. I think I butchered that, but let me tell you exactly what 
exactly what's going on. So w- what he's trying to say is that whenever he goes back to Syria, when he goes back to that place, he's going to have to go back to the king. And when he goes back to the king, this king is old. This king is old, and he's going to have to accompany this king to the worship of this God, Remen. He's going to have to accompany him. And when he goes, this king is going to have to bow, and he's going to have to hold the king's arm, and he's going to have to bow with him. And so Naaman realizes he has a problem. He will have no choice but to go with this king. And when he does, he'll have to bow alongside the king. And he wants to know, will God forgive this action? Will God forgive me for doing this? Naaman knows that, that, that Yahweh is God alone. But he can't just walk away from his position that he's in. So what would you expect Elisha to say in response to this? I'll tell you what I expect. I expect him to quote Joshua and to say, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Make your choice, man. Quit hedging. If you've picked Yahweh, then worship Yahweh. Stick to your commitment. But instead, Elisha says, go in peace. You're good. Don't worry about it. All's going to be fine. I'll bet that flies all over some of y'all. It flies all over me. I don't like it. You rule followers. I bet y'all don't like that. I'm telling you, I don't like it. How dare Elisha say something like that? How dare Elisha just let him off the hook like that? Pick, pick your God. If you say you worship Yahweh, look what he's done for you. Worship him. But this is a lesson that I think we need to learn. Sometimes we can be so in love with our rules that in the complexity of life, we love our rules more than we love people. I know the gray area makes you uncomfortable. Trust me, I'm a pastor. I don't like standing up here and saying this. I'll just be totally honest with you. I don't like standing up here and and saying this. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm a dad. This makes me uncomfortable to stand up here and to say this. But there is beauty and grace there for us when God tells us, go in peace. Maybe don't be so hard on yourself or your kids or your spouse or your boss or your family members or whoever it is that you are so hell-bent on judging. Maybe, just maybe, you need to show yourself some grace and show others some grace too. Don't love your rules more than you love people. Everything within me wants to give 15 caveats to that statement. Everything within me wants to say, yeah, but, 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 and this is true, and yes, this also has to be true, but I'm not going to do it. I really feel like the Holy Spirit just wants me to leave that as pregnant and uncomfortable as it is. Don't love your rules more than you love people. One, one last thing. One last thing. I know, I know we're running a little bit short on time, but one last thing. I can't not go back to this. We need to see the hero of the story. We need to see the slave girl. Elisha is not the hero in the story. Elisha does nothing. He's quick to say, hey, man, I just told you to go, ahead and go get in the water. The hero is this, this, this slave girl. We don't even know how old she is. She's clearly very young. I want you to think about what it would have taken for her to speak up. This man is, 
is probably responsible for the death and destruction of almost everything and everyone she's ever known. He's fully in charge of her. She has no right to even speak, let alone speak to such a private, delicate matter of the commander of the Syrian armies. But she does. If she harbors resentment, she doesn't show it. She would have been well within her rights to keep her mouth shut and let him suffer. She could have had her own private little dance party whenever he suffered. But instead, she offers him hope. A little girl without much hope, in the midst of suffering, uses her suffering as an opportunity to speak God into someone else's life. This may be you right now. If it's not now, it will be you someday. Will you allow your pain and suffering to be an occasion for sharing hope with others? There is nothing more beautiful than to see a girl that has lost everything still have the ability to share just a little bit of hope in the person and the character of God. And this is how it is with Jesus. A lonely man on the receiving end of bitter injustice prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he, as, he, as he dies on the cross, suffering for the sins of others, he provides home in the midst of the ultimate suffering and pain. Even in the darkest hour, the hope never fades away in Scripture. Even in the darkest hour, the hope remains. Friends, the message of Naaman is that even the enemy of God can be healed and cleansed. God doesn't wait on us to come to him. He sends out his messengers of hope when we most need them. We simply need to receive that truth. God's grace can overcome all of those obstacles. God's grace is available to all who call on his name, even those who are the sworn enemy of God, which is all of us according to the book of Romans apart from Christ. And while we, were yet, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Naaman's story is a beautiful one. He cannot purchase his salvation. He cannot earn it. His accolades get him nothing. His money get, gets him nothing. His power and his connections get him nothing. It's simply the obedience to receive the gift. So this morning, we're gonna, I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to pray here in just a second. We'll take the Lord's Supper after our next song. I'll come back up and, 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 uh, and give us the opportunity to be able to do that. But as we, as we finish up and as we pray here, I just want to invite you, if you've not experienced what that's like to have your sin, that, that, that sin that is rotting you from the inside out, have that cleansed and understand and know that forgiveness, it's available to you today. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how much you have, uh, how, how much you, you you have and bring to the table this morning. None of it will get you anywhere. It's simply receiving what Christ has done. What God asks of us is that we would humble ourselves, remove the things that we find the greatest pride in. And we will come to him and offer nothing but our plea that he would heal us.
And I pray that you would do that this morning. I'll be available in the back. I can pray with you. We can talk. Love to be able to talk with you after the service if you want to stay around. Don't leave here not knowing the freedom that Naaman has. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning it is our confession that too often we come to you and we try to prove our worth to you. We, we, we try to offer up something to you to say, God, because I've given this to you, will you bless me? And I pray that you would show us the truth of the story of Naaman, that none of that gets us anywhere. It doesn't even get us past the front door. Father, I pray for those in here that are walking in the midst of suffering and in pain. For those that are dealing with those struggles and those, those things that, that Naaman's story and the story of the slave girl would be an encouragement. That perhaps in that suffering and that pain, they would know you in ways they've never known you before. And that perhaps in that suffering and in that pain, they will be able to speak hope into someone else's life because of it. just ask that you would not leave us alone, that you would draw us closer to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.
time now we will take the Lord's Supper. The elements are here. As always, there's the, the individually packaged ones if you guys would rather do those. But there is no greater testimony to the healing power of what God can do than what we observe here when we take the Lord's Supper. There is no greater testimony that even whenever things are the darkest, which is exactly what they were in the moments whenever Jesus instituted this new covenant, that even in the darkest, the hope was always there. It never went away. So this morning, this is what we celebrate. As always, I would ask that uh, if you are uh, not an active follower of Christ, that you would not uh, that you would not take these elements. If you, um, but if you have accepted Christ and you have made Him your Lord and your Savior, then these elements are open to you, parents. Uh, as always, use discretion with your children. Use this as a time to uh, to teach and to explain what is happening with these uh, with these elements. But my encouragement to you is as you come and you take these elements that you would consider the the healing of Naaman and what he brought to the table and that as you come to the table, you, like Naaman, bring nothing. That as the song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that that's what we would celebrate this morning in the taking of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The tables are open. 